0: Luke 22, now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and to the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them with no crowd, when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Well, good evening.
1: I just feel really full right now, and that's not just the potato and the bacon in my stomach, Uh, which normally I preach on an empty stomach, so I don't know how this is going to translate in this moment. Um, But I don't know, this just feels like a really special night, I think, with the mixture of seeing new faces, getting to meet new people, as well as the effort put in by by so many people in in this church utilizing their gifts to, to make this happen. And so, yeah, I just feel really full. And so thanks. Thanks, everyone, for, for doing this. And there's something even sweet, too, of like, you know, Sunday is it's the first day of the week, and we're going into our, our Monday workday tomorrow, and, and we're kind of finishing our day uh, in the presence of one another. And I feel like that just is setting us up well for a good work week. So uh, all that to say, thanks for letting me be up here. I'll be preaching out of Luke 22. My name is Joseph. If I haven't met you yet today, um, let me pray. And we'll just get right into it. Father, I do just hold such, such a strong conviction and belief that, that you love each person in this room. And you want them to know it. And you want them to know the depths at which you've gone to be in relationship with them, with me. And so, God, I, I pray that, that this, this passage, this sermon, these words would help us understand that and receive that just, just a little bit more. Um, so, God, would you accomplish that by, by your Holy Spirit? And pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so this sermon is about what Jesus does with us in our sin. What, what does he do with us in our sin? So I want to talk a little bit at first about what what sin is, and and particularly the the weight of sin. So I want to tell a little story about uh, a kid that we'll call little Johnny, all right? Little Johnny uh, wasn't held enough as a baby, and so he had some relational development problems. And when he was in elementary school, uh, he, he got angry easily. And so one day while he was at school, he, he ended up punching one of his students, and, and he, he lost recess for the day. On a different day, little Johnny got angry with his teacher, and he, and he punched his teacher. My goodness. And so he got detention for a few days. And then, and then on a different day, little Johnny was sent to the principal's office, and the principal knelt down in front of him, and, and he looked her right in the eyes and punched her right in the face. He was suspended for a week, all right? Now, little Johnny, right, has, has some problems, has some, some anger issues, right? But outside of that, there, there's another takeaway, which is, why is it that his punishment changed for each person, though it was the same action, right? He, he had the same offense in terms of hitting. Well, the reason why is the punishment was directly related to the amount of honor and respect due to the position, right? A, a principle, hitting a principle is different than, than hitting a student. And so this theologian, Jonathan Edwards, takes this very idea and says that God, being someone who's deserving of infinite honor, respect, and obedience, when he is dishonored, then therefore there is an eternal or infinite judgment, right? That not all sin is the same, but it all falls under that infinite weight. So that's a very cognitive way to understand sin, right? And when we're talking about sin, we're talking about the things that we do that, that are messed up and the things about us that are messed up. But there's also an experience of the weight of sin that, that you might have felt, right? Maybe, maybe you've, you've woken up in the morning to a reality that, that your sinful action has created, and before you can even breathe your first breath, your heart already sinks knowing what you have to face. Or it's, or it's the, the deep pain of hurting someone that you love. Or it's the feeling of, of being stuck in darkness, and it's overwhelming darkness, and, and, and you can't seem to get out of it. It's, it's feeling like you're a fraud. It's the, way, the weight of sin is, is feeling the shame of being a liar, right? of doing the things that, that we said we wouldn't, we wouldn't do. It's the feeling of, of being unlovable. Man, I'm 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 just a despicable person. Right? That's that's the weight of sin and it's heavy. And so as you have you ever experienced that or you understand the story of, of little Johnny, then you understand the weight of sin. And the question, right, that we have to wrestle with is, is what is Jesus gonna do with us? How does he respond to us? This, this great writer, Dane Ortland, we quote him a lot because he wrote this awesome book, Gentle and Lowly. And he observes this about how we project certain ideas onto Jesus. He says this We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that one so high and exulting, exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean. In other words, when we consider Jesus, we think he wants nothing to do with us. In fact, he, 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 would, he would run away from us in our sin. But what's sweet about this text that we're in today is that Jesus shows that that's not what he's like at all. But instead, he wants to reach out and come to us and offer us something. What we're going to see in this text is that Jesus, when he sees us in our sin, earnestly desires to give us a cup. He earnestly desires to give us a cup. And we're going to unpack and expand that idea to what actually does that mean, because as of right now, that's a bit enigmatic. But stick with me, and there's some pretty sweet stuff. All right, so the first expansion of that. Jesus desires to give us his cup in exchange for our cup. All right? So look at, look at verse 14. Right, Jesus is uh, at, at uh, what we call the Lord's Supper, the, or his last supper. And verse 14 of chapter 22 of Luke says this. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. Now, that language of our is really important in all the Gospels, right? It's, it's basically the moment of Jesus' ministry that he's trying to get to. It's, it's right here. It's right now. There's no more looking forward to anything in his earthly life. It's, it's, it's this moment that he came. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, as he's reclining at the table, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, he earnestly desires to eat this meal. Now when I first read this and thought about Jesus' hour, when I think of like Jesus' longing for a moment, I think of like the, the death on the cross and the resurrection, like that that is his most important moment. But right here, it, it's not that he longed for that. It, it's, he actually longed for the meal. It's actually the meal itself, the meal that that we're reading about, he has longed to have this moment, which, in, in, a, in a certain sense, is, is kind of strange, right? Why, what's so significant about this meal? But I just want to pause on that phrase, "Earnestly desired." Because going back to that Dane Ortlund quote, again, our, our conception of Jesus is that he, he, has, he doesn't want anything to do with us, or, or before he can have anything to do with us, we need to clean ourselves up. But Jesus, right, considering this in, in his godhood, I think is earnestly desiring us to meet him at this table in this text, that he wants to move towards us and for us to move towards him and see what, what is this that he has to offer us at this meal, at this table, Right, when Jesus sees us in our sin, he doesn't run away, but he earnestly desires to have this meal with us. And why is that? Well, verse 16 tells us, the word for, right, provides the explanation. For I say to you, I shall never again eat with you until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He then repeats this idea again in verse 17. He says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this. And share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, aka wine, from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is saying, Look, this is important to me because I'm not going to eat again until the fullness of the kingdom is here, to the kingdom of God. And he says, The symbol of this is this cup. Take, Take this cup and share it. Now, throughout the Old Testament, And even here in the Gospel of Luke, the idea of a cup or the idea of a meal symbolizes when the kingdom of God comes in fullness that that there's going to be promises and blessing. Right? The being in the presence of God. No sin, joy, healing. All of these promises will be given, and this cup symbolizes it. And so he's handing it to the disciples and saying, "This, this is yours. I'm giving this to you. But I can't help... But, but notice and think about how at 15 verses from this point, another cup shows up. If you look at verse 42, Jesus is alone in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He's so anxious that he's sweating blood because he knows he's about to be tortured on the cross. And he prays. He prays to God and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. See, there's another kind of cup that is a theme in scripture. And that is a cup of of wrath, a cup of judgment. A couple of verses that that show this. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, uh, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, this is Jeremiah 25, take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath. The significance of this moment is that at this meal when Jesus is handing a cup to the disciples, saying this is representing the blessings of the kingdom to come. is That when the disciples reach out to grab it, they're not, they're not reaching out empty handed, that they have a cup of their own. And Jesus is taking that away from them and handing them a cup of blessing. And he takes the cup that was due to them, this cup of wrath. Right, the judgment, the condemnation that comes for the sin, Jesus says, I'll, I'll take that cup. You get, you get the good stuff, I'll take the bad stuff. That's the great exchange. He exchanges cups with us. Right, when Jesus invites us to the table, he's inviting us to an exchange. We get his goodness and he takes our badness. In other words, in, in response to the weight of our sin, right, Jesus earnestly desires to have a meal where he exchanges cups, gives us blessing. He's not interested in judging and cursing and condemning. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save. He doesn't run away, he reaches out. So that's the first thing we see. The second response or or the offering of the cup is this. Jesus earnestly desires to give us the greater Passover cup. Jesus earnestly desires to give us the greater Passover cup. So I don't know if you've noticed this. uh, Verse 15, when we read it, is that Jesus said, I earnestly desire to have the Passover meal. In Melissa's reading from 22.1, it also, the, the whole context is set up like this. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Right? This is the context of the meal, is, is the Passover. And so, it's important here to unpack what that is, because probably for most of us, we, we don't have a great understanding of what, what is the tradition, what is the idea behind Passover. And so, uh, in Exodus, right at the beginning of Israel's history, They are enslaved in the land of Egypt. And in the land of Egypt, uh, they're there for 400 years. And when God brings them out, he says, I'm going to give 10 plagues. And the 10 plagues represent judgment of of Egypt for enslaving Israel and for the worship of other gods. And then on top of that, the 10 plagues were necessary for Pharaoh's heart to be changed so he would let the Israelites go. And so the 10th plague was the most intense and the most serious plague. God said, I'm going to pass over every household and take the life of the firstborn son. Now, this was going to be true for the Israelites as well, because when God judges sin, he doesn't judge with partiality. But he told the Israelites, there's there's actually a way, though, for salvation, a way for protection from this. He says, what what you need to do is go and, and find a lamb and slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your homes. And when I come by at midnight, when the angel of death comes by at midnight, and I see the blood on the posts, I will pass over your homes. Hence the term Passover. And then on top of that, he says what you're going to do is you're going to have a feast or a, a, a meal of unleavened bread where you're going to make bread without yeast because it's going to symbolize that you don't even have time for bread to rise because you have to leave Egypt in so much haste. And then he says, when you do this, this will be a lasting practice for Israel, that this is something you will do every year. And so the Israelites did that, right? They, they slaughtered the lamb. They, eat, they ate the meat. They uh, created a meal out. They put the blood on the doorpost. The Lord passed over, and they were set free from Egypt. And Bruce Waltke, uh, an Old Testament scholar, summarizes this well. He says, Deliverance rests solely on Israel's trusting God's Passover provision. Israel is delivered because a death that satisfies God's wrath has been made and applied by faith. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking that meal, that moment, and he's doing something new with it at this, at this table that we see in, Ex- or in, in, Le- in Luke 22. He tells the disciples, go prepare the Passover. So they take the lamb... They prepare the meal. He sits at the dinner. But then, instead of pointing to the lamb, he points to something different. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, uh, or it says this, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant and my blood. In other words, the new Passover has become his body, his blood. That the covering is no longer being put on doorposts, but it's but it's his blood that covers and protects us right from, from condemnation, from judgment of our sin. Right, as we began in the sermon, that, that, that sin demands judgment. But yet Jesus has provided a covering, which means when he sees us in his sin, he's, he's not in, interested in condemnation. He's in, interested in, in the breaking of his own body, by the giving of his own blood, to provide protection. So that this judgment could be passed over. Right, he provides a cup symbolizing this. What this means for us is that, is that we have full assurance and because of our faith of what God or what Jesus has provided us. Now, I, I want to illustrate that with, with a story. This is a former professor of mine, uh, D.A. Carson. He, he, he tells this, this story. He says, imagine, imagine two Israelites on the night of Passover. Smith and Brown is what we'll call them. And on the, on the night, right, the angel of death is going to pass through and and so Smith says to Brown, like, man, are you a little nervous about tonight? And Brown says, well, you heard what, what God said through Moses, that did, didn't you slaughter the lamb? Didn't you cover the, the, the doorposts and the lintel with blood? Did you not eat the meal? Have you not prepared your, your, your belongings to exit Egypt? Right? You, you, you've done all those things. Smith says, yeah, but of course I've done those, but still a little scary, right? I mean, it's the angel of death passing, passing by. I mean, you have three sons. I only have one. I don't, I don't want to lose him. I don't know. I'm just, just not sure. Brown says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Now, that night when the angel of death passed through, which one lost his son? The answer, of course, is neither, because when the Lord passed through, he did not ground it on the intensity of the faith, but the grounds of salvation were on the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Right? The grounds of being passed over, the grounds of salvation was the blood of the lamb, not the intensity of the faith, which, which means this. Right, that, that in the weight of our, of our sin, right, when, when our own consciences are accusing us of our sin, when other people accuse us, when Satan accuses us, all of it is silenced by the blood of Jesus. That when we look at our lives and we see that we've committed the same sins over and over again, or we've been Christians for a long time, and we commit sin... Or when we've committed sin that, that, is, that is too dark, and we're asking, Lord, Lord would, you, would you still love me? Would you still care about me? Are, are you going to leave me? Are you going to run away? Are you going to leave me on my own? The blood of the Lamb says no. That you are covered. That he has no thought of your sin. Because the blood... Jesus covers us. That is the assurance that we have when Jesus sees us in our sin, he desires to give us covering. Finally, the last, Jesus earnestly desires to offer the cup or, or give us the cup of the new covenant. Jesus earnestly desires to give us the cup of the new covenant. In this passage in Luke 20, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. And it says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, it's interesting. This is the only gospel that explicitly ties the Lord's Supper to a new covenant, which raises, raises an in- interesting question of what does a meal have to do with a covenant? Why, why would the institution of the covenant happen at, at a meal? And so if you've been in our uh, Bible reading class, all right, we've been talking about covenants a lot, and so this, this will be a useful time to pull out that knowledge. But I want to talk briefly just, just what, what is a covenant, how that connects to this meal. Right, a covenant is basically just an agreement between two parties, right? building relational involvement. And it has, it has two parts to make a covenant. It has a vow where two people promise to do things, and it also had a meal provided by a sacrifice. Now, a key uh, example of this is Exodus 24. So in Exodus 24, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, right? Talk about the Passover. They come out of Egypt, and, and Moses, the one leading the people of God, leading the Israelites, takes a few elders. They go up a mountain. There is God's presence. So God, God is present there. And they ratify a covenant. And what they do is they, they make their oaths and then they offer a peace offering. And a peace offering is, is an offering where, where a lamb or goat was slaughtered and then some of it was put on an altar and burnt up and then they had a meal and ate it. And that's exactly what they did in Exodus 24 to ratify uh, this covenant. That, that's what it looks like, a vow and eating a meal. But this practice extended beyond this moment. If you read in the Old Testament, uh, there's a thing called a peace offering that continued onward. And what, what the way that peace offering would be practiced is that people who wanted to renew the, their covenant with God, right, renew their relationship with the Lord, would go to the priests, offer a goat and lamb, they would, they would kill it, they would uh, burn something on the altar, and then they would eat it, but they would eat it right next to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the, the thing or the place in which God, God said, hey, I'm, I'm going to dwell here. And he signified that by a lit candle. And something called the bread of presence. So if you think about, right, if you were to, when you drive home tonight and you see your neighbor with their lights on and food on the table, what would you think? Someone's home. Well, in the same way, God God was home. He he made his home, his dwelling with the people in the tabernacle and said they would eat this meal in the presence of the Lord, renewing that covenant, renewing the relationship, saying, "Lord, Lord, I commit myself to you. And the Lord commits himself to his people. And that's exactly why we take the Lord's Supper every week. Because we're renewing a covenant with God. And we believe God to be uniquely present with us in that. Right, so having a meal is part of covenant making. But what Jesus says here is he says he's not renewing something. He's actually doing something new. Verse 20, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Which calls upon a promise in Jeremiah 31. Where God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. And then he lists a bunch of promises. And then the final promise and the guarantee of why this covenant is possible is because he says in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, he says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. Right, What Jesus is instituting once and for all in this meal is his body and his blood as the peace offering, as the sacrifice that enables forgiveness so that we can be in relationship with God, so we can enjoy the promises of God. In other words, when, when Jesus sees us in our sin, he doesn't run away. He says, no, I want to have a meal with you so I can make a covenant relationship with you. And I want that so bad with you that I will do whatever is, is, is needed to make that happen, which includes him going to a cross, being tortured and dying, so that our sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus thinks when he sees us in our sin. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Good Will Hunting. I'm assuming a lot of us have, because good movie. Um, Oscar-winning movie, Matt Damon, Robin Williams, Ben Affleck. And at the end of the movie, there is this scene with uh, the main character, Will, and his counselor that he's built a, a relationship with. His name is Sean. And, right, Will is in counseling because he was a court-ordered uh, th- from his arrest. And they've developed this special relationship. But this is the first time Sean, the counselor, is seeing the reports of Will's abuse as a kid. He's seeing images of the, the bruises, the cuts, of being beaten by his foster dad with belts, wrenches, sticks. And so they end up having this really tender moment where, where Sean, the counselor, looks, looks at Will. And he says to him, hey, hey Will, this stuff, point, pointing to the portfolio of, of all these things, he says, this, this stuff, it's not your fault. And Will says, yeah, I know. He's someone who was, who was a bit hardened, right? He, he, he needed a little bit of breakthrough. And so, so Will presses, or Sean presses in. He says, no, son, look at me. It's, it's not your fault. I know. He says, no, it's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And tears just start streaming down his face. It's not your fault. He says, Sean, don't don't mess with me. And he says, it's it's not your fault. It's not your fault. To the point where he finally breaks down, fully crying and hugging him. For the first time, this this message pierces his heart and, and he believes it and he hears it. And what's true for us as people is sometimes we need to hear a message over and over and over again for us to finally believe it. And so Jesus gives us a cup that is a spoken word to us over and over again, saying, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I know. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Yeah, but, 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 but you don't know what I've done. You're, you're forgiven. But it, but it was the same sin over and over. You're You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Right when Jesus sees us in our sin, he doesn't run away. He desires to give us a cup. that is the symbol of his, his willingness to death to be in relationship with you and me and proclaim and forgive all sins, making no remembrance of any of it. Forgiven. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that that, that message would, would sink into our hearts, that we would hear it, that when the accuser accuses our consciences, when we're weighed down by our sin, by the things that we've done that are messed up, the things that that we've done to hurt others, to to disobey you, to dishonor you, all of those things, Lord, that, that we hear your word to us. You're forgiven. Let that be what draws us into deep love and relationship with you, that we're forgiven, Lord. Amen.